Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Well, it is hard to believe, but after three years, we have reached 100 episodes of the Need to Know podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is Aaron Jones, your host. Very proud to be doing this episode today. And we'll give you a little sense of what we're up to in this episode. When we first started this podcast, the idea was if a policymaker or congressional staffer had 20 minutes to sit down with an expert, what do they need to know? And hence, the Need to Know podcast was born. Shortly after I started the podcast, I sat down to lunch with a friend of mine who was also a Wilson Center board member. And as we sat down to lunch, he said, you know, one of the Wilson Center's strengths is the fact that our experts are able to see over the horizon. Maybe you want to work that into the podcast somehow. And so you may have noticed, if you are a longtime listener, that Usually the last question that I ask of our experts that I have on the show is to say, what's on the horizon? What, what do you think is coming up next? What are the things that a policymaker should be looking at that maybe aren't being talked about right now uh, and are going to come up later? And so we thought we would celebrate that as our celebration for our 100th episode. Going back, taking a look at a few of the experts that have been on the show, some of their predictions and what came of them. I'm going to go way back to the very beginning. One of the first interviews that we did was with a expert that we've had at the Wilson Center a few times for fellowship, Ann Kokos, who is an expert on the media and China, has written a book, Hollywood in China. And she really pulls back the curtain on how China influences media, even in the United States, even our domestic media. One of the very first episodes we did was called is China dictating what we see at the movies, which later we had some incidents uh, involving the NBA and had her back on to see, uh, is China dictating what we see on TV? And we've had her on a couple more times. This is an always prescient, always interesting topic. Let's hear a little bit about what she had to say in that first episode. I assume that many people might be surprised that China would have influence on what we as Americans are consuming at the box office. What, if you were to sit down with a congressional staffer or a policymaker, what do you think they need to know about China's influence in this space? Well, the most important thing that a staffer should know is that China's box office is growing to become the largest in the world. So just like all of the other industries that the U.S. is looking to, to China for a market, China's film industry is similarly a market that they're very interested in. Now, this isn't just for exports to China, but this is also Chinese influence into the United States. Hmm. And how does that work? 
So Chinese Chinese filmmakers, Chinese studios, and also other Chinese firms are increasingly trying to purchase U.S. media properties, so either parts of studios or investing in slates of films, which is a series of different films. Um, so, for example, Oscar winner Green Book uh, was partially funded by Alibaba Pictures. Hmm. Explain to me a little bit about what they're doing to Hollywood and mm. how that works. If if a Hollywood movie wants to be seen in China, uh, what are the hoops that they have to jump through, and what is what is China's influence there? So there are a couple of different ways in which Chinese regulators influence Hollywood studio filmmakers. Now, on one hand, there's the effort to enter the market. So that's things like how do you work with China's film import quota, uh, which technically is part of our current trade negotiations. So we'll see what happens with that. But Hollywood studio filmmakers are trying to make films that Chinese regulators feel good about watching um, and feel feel good about distributing. And that has a chilling effect on the types of blockbuster films that are being made. So, for example, Avengers Endgame um, just took the number one slot in China. So mm. they're wasn't going to be content in that film that would not play well in the Chinese audience because of how much money they were able to bring in. When you say things like things that won't play well for the Chinese audience, what are we talking about there? So one thing that's important to note is that all Chinese films have to be accessible for general audiences. So this is very much like in the U.S. during the Hays Code. So sex, violence, things like that are off limits. Now, there are other things that are more that are different from the U.S. system. So, for example, portrayals of religion, negative portrayals of officials, um, anything that's considered uh, feudal or overly spiritual, um, anything that portrays the Chinese system as being corrupt or backward, all of those things are subject to potential evaluation and, um, and removal from content. Another expert that we have had on a few times is Dr. Mike Sfrega. And he is the director of our Polar Institute. And he was also appointed by President Biden to serve as the chairman of the United States Arctic Research Commission, a really useful resource to have at the Wilson Center. Early on in the Needs to Know podcast, we had him on to discuss the Arctic. I asked him the over the horizon question. And what do you know? He told us we needed to watch out for Greenland. A few weeks later, Greenland came up in the news. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that here. I asked Mike what we needed to look for out on the horizon, and he mentioned Greenland. To me, one of the most interesting, aside from the China-Russia-U.S. relationship, is the issue of Greenland. When you look at a map, Greenland is so geostrategic to the Allies, to NATO. Uh, when you look at that map and you think about who would like to have influence in in, uh, in uh, Greenland, even though it's part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Uh, China has tried and will continue to try to invest just like they have invested in the rest of the world. Therefore, And here we are talking about Greenland. So let's talk about Greenland. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, thanks. And I'm glad we mentioned Greenland. Because, we mentioned Greenland, because right? Because it, 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 it emerged. Uh, it's always been there, obviously, but... Boy, well, this the, is what you say about the Arctic, right? The it's, Arctic it's it emerged. is emerged, and now we have Greenland now that has emerged, another part of the Arctic. Exactly. And it's like it's as if Greenland is this uh, exemplary of what's happening in the Arctic, right? It's the, the Arctic has been emerging, all these big political social issues in the Arctic. But Greenland, if you just look at the island and the government of Greenland, its relationship to the Kingdom of Denmark, 
in so many ways, it's exemplary of what's happening in the Arctic writ large. Well, let's let's tease that out. Okay. What is what are these issues? Obviously, we'll get to President Trump yeah. and the desire yeah. for a grand real estate deal, probably the largest in history, yeah. uh, bigger than Alaska, right? Wouldn't it be? I, uh, it's it would be the biggest island purchase. Island purchase because yeah. it is the biggest island. It is the biggest island. Would, it's an easy statement right. to make, right? <laughs> um, okay, well, let's tease this out. Let's see how the how does this how does this show what's going on in the Arctic and well, the think, policy changes. Yeah, I think, you know, if you had to just have one line, it's it shows how important geographic location is, mm-hmm. especially in the Arctic. Greenland's always been strategic to the United States, to NATO, to the Allies, always has been. But this really points out how strategic Greenland is and in the nations and the U.S.'s best interest to keep this relationship really solid. It also teases out the fact that it's so central to the Arctic, which has now emerged as this very strategic theater. So it places Greenland in a very, very different place, not geographically, but perhaps politically, something many of us have been following. But for the first time, whether it's CNN, BBC, mm-hmm. you have your favorite letters of news organizations, everybody wants to cover Greenland. Mm-hmm. N- not much has changed aside from a statement by the president noting one way or another how important Greenland is. Right. It would be strategically important for the United States if, if we the opportunity it. arose. Right. Correct. But it's, it's equally strategically important for the United States to be firmly committed to the relationship between the kingdom of Denmark, which includes obviously Denmark, the Faroe Islands and Greenland, equally committed to that as we might be to having that real estate under the U.S. umbrella. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same kind of motivation, I think, why the U.S. should, be, should care about Greenland. It's because it is so strategic to our own national interests. It's also integral to the future of the Arctic. And the relationship between the Kingdom of Denmark and the United States is incredibly important, if for no other reason, our alliance with NATO. They are a solid member mm-hmm. via Denmark, but also with Greenland. So we've invested over decades, millions and millions and millions of dollars in Greenland. Mm -hmm. So we already have a sitting investment there. Moving a little bit more recently, let's talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine here in 2022 has drummed up a lot of insight, a lot of analysis One of the experts that we've had on to talk about this in January of this year is Nigel Gould Davies. And one of the things that he said, as Russia was amassing its troops on the border with Ukraine, the media was talking an awful lot about how the Russians are just going to roll right in. There was a lot of speculation that if they they rolled into Ukraine, that it was going to be a short, uh, an overwhelming victory, that there was no way that the, the Ukrainians would be able to hold off. The Russians, and here we are several months later. And let's hear what Nigel Gould Davies was saying about this in January of this year, prior to the invasion. A little bit to what I wanted to be my last question, which is, what do things look like from here? If if Putin gets what he wants, these concessions that Will has just told us about, uh, obviously that straps NATO, um, and. We, we see where the outcome would be there. But Nigel, if Putin were to invade, if Russia were to invade Ukraine, what does Ukraine look like after an invasion from Russia? That's a horrifying prospect, of course. It would amount to the biggest clash of regular forces in Europe since World War II. Uh, Russian military and also the Ukrainian military have 
reformed and developed substantially since 2014. This would be a very, very nasty and, 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 and grim struggle indeed. Clearly, the numerical superiority of Russia. What we don't know yet is if it comes to an open conflict, what Russia's the political military scenario would be. And there are many possibilities. You can think of a sliding scale. All of the possibilities are horrific, but at the least horrific end, it would be a matter of something like uh, a, a significant, uh, locally overwhelming, but limited incursion uh, on the part of Russia that would aim to degrade a substantial proportion of U Ukraine's forces quickly, uh, but then not hold territory beyond uh, the Donbass. Moving along the sliding scale of horror, you have uh, potentially a uh, you know, range of scenarios uh, of Russia seeking not just to uh, to invade, but then to hold what's fundamentally hostile territory, more hostile even than 2014, since the, the, the trauma of that first invasion uh, has helped ignite and consolidate Ukrainian nationalism. I mean, uh, polls suggest now that 72% of the Ukrainian population view Russia as a, a hostile state. But so you could expect something like a, a form of partisan uh, warfare, and Ukraine is already preparing for that. But there are other scenarios we don't know, of course, and Russia is unlikely to do entirely what any of us expects so or the other instruments available to it. Cyber attacks, for example, and we saw uh, a, 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 a limited version of that just a few days ago. Troops, Russian troops, potentially uh, from Belarus, uh, also invading uh, as another vector of attack. So this, this will be, there are many uh, scenarios, uh, all of them bad, of course, uh, in the worst case, uh, not just immediate destruction, but prolonged and bitter and very nasty fighting. And that would transform Russia's relationship with not just the West, but I think with much of the rest of the world. Uh, 2014 was a shock from which the, the Russian-Western relationship has never recovered, but uh, precipitating this fighting uh, in Europe on, on any kind of scale would, 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 for the long term, and as, as long as Putin or anyone like him is in power, would entirely alienate uh, Russia from access to uh, any sort of constructive relationship with the West. So for many, many reasons for all of us, the stakes here are very high. Now that is exactly what the Wilson Center is here for. Trying to make sure that people are seeing beyond the headlines getting into the trend lines and understanding things that are happening really on the ground. Uh, you know, it's hard to get nonpartisan information when it comes to Russia, China, North Korea, Latin America. We have it here. And uh, it's one of the things that makes working at the Wilson Center great. You know, I just do the congressional relations piece and I'm able to bring experts in front of Congress. But it's wonderful to actually to be able to sit in these briefings, interview our experts like this, and I get to learn just as much as you get to learn. We will take a short break, and when we come back, we will have two of our experts on to talk about some of the interviews that they have had with the Need to Know podcast, where their predictions have come true and things that are interesting, and maybe even look a little bit further over the horizon with them. Stay tuned. 100 episodes of the Need to Know podcast in the can, but you know, the Wilson Center has a lot of other podcasts as well. To check out our great inventory of podcast content, be sure to go to wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts and check them out.
All right, so moving forward here for our 100th episode, I want to bring back our friend Robert Daly. If you've listened to the podcast over the last three years, this voice sounds very familiar to you. Welcome back, Robert. Good to be with you again. I felt like this was a, a this is your life episode there for a second. So um want to talk to you because as we're talking to experts here about predictions that came true, I'm so proud to work with a bunch of colleagues who are able to look over the horizon and help congressional staff and policymakers look, okay, we know not only what's going on today, we, we know the headlines, but we also know what may be happening and what to watch for going forward. So a couple of years ago, during what everyone called a trade war, man, it seems like so long ago, doesn't it? Uh, two years ago, uh, as we turned from 2019 to 2020, we heard this from Robert. But it's been the pattern uh, under Presidents Obama, Bush, going back further, that whenever we've had a major spike in concern over uh, things like IPR or other aspects of China's openness, or when there have been frictions in the trade relationship, China would famously send buying missions to the United States. And they would order more Boeings, more soybeans, more wheat. Uh, they would come with open checkbooks or at least with a lot of MOUs and make promises to buy more. And they would spread these promises around the country. Uh, now, only about 50% at most of a lot of these promises would actually materialize. And they kept making the same promises and the same purchases again and again to get over short-term crises. That is the way this is being handled. The short-term crisis is political on the United States side. It's President Trump's desire to uh, win re-election in 2020 based on a strong economy. He doesn't want a threat to that. China goes to school on these issues. They understand these pressures very well. So they were in a good position to wait. This is really just China agreeing to make more purchases of American goods, most prominently agricultural commodities. The, the, what the Chinese government has been saying is that they have avoided the December 15th tariffs and that the United States has uh, begun to roll back other tariffs. So it's largely a victory. They have mentioned agricultural purchases, but haven't gone into any detail. They have not affirmed any of these numbers. And they have also said that China would be uh, making the purchases that met China's needs, which is probably true. And they have said, interestingly, uh, very clearly, whatever the number is, whether it's $32 billion, $40 billion, $50 billion. China has said that it would increase its purchases of American agricultural commodities in accordance with market needs and WTO rules. Those are pretty big caveats. In other words, we'll buy what we need. Robert, so we, we hear what you had to say there, that they really... Uh, when you come to phase one of the trade war resolution, they were supposed to, uh, the, it was trumpeted at the time. We're, they, they're going to, we're going to have so much buying power from the Chinese. They've committed to buying these agricultural products, but they really didn't commit. They only really committed to what they could do under the market forces. And then we had COVID. So catch us up. What happened after phase one? So, you know, phase one was always a truce of convenience called essentially by the United States who accepted China's terms. Uh, every time under previous presidents, previous to Trump, that, that we had raised these issues, 
China had settled, you know, with purchases and and promises. And we ended up taking that again uh, under Trump because Trump was convinced, probably correctly, uh, that had he continued to impose more tariffs, uh, it could have been recessionary and recessionary in an election year. And so he needed a truce. And that was called the phase one trade deal. Uh, I don't think that anyone seriously thought there was going to be a phase two. And as was widely pointed out at the time, uh, China didn't make an absolute commitment. And even if they fulfilled all the pledges that they made to buy more American goods, agricultural goods in particular, we couldn't supply everything that they had said they were going to buy. Yeah, at the time, I remember you saying that they were basically supposedly committing to buying, what, twice as much as they had previously bought in, in several years prior to that? Right. So not only can we not produce it, but even if we could produce it and they could buy it, it would have harmed major allies from whom they had previously bought the grains or the oils or whatever it was. So it never made a great deal of sense. And then, as you said, COVID hit. And I think that that all pledges of that kind were seen, certainly by China, as out the window for the time being. And I would argue that that's not unreasonable on China's part. You know, it's uh, it, it was a, a shaky pledge for convenience anyway, and COVID did make a massive difference. And so, uh, their purchases are well below 50% of what they've promised. They are still a major export market, especially for American agricultural uh, industry, especially for the heartland. Uh, so I think that, you know, as, on agricultural purchases in particular, I think you've got to give China passing marks for good faith under the circumstances. But then the other thing that, that really changed with COVID, it wasn't just COVID. The one-two punch of the trade war, which was seen as an insulting attack on China, designed to weaken and contain China, that was very much exacerbated by the accusations we made about COVID and China's behavior, which were also seen as attacks. Not so much the critique that China covered up in the early days, which it did. The Chinese themselves were critical of that. There's simply no question that China badly handled uh, the first few months and wasn't as forthcoming uh, as it should have been. But it was the subsequent accusations which tended to blame all American COVID cases on China, as though we hadn't made any policy mistakes. And especially the loud accusations, uh, particularly from Capitol Hill, uh, that this may have been not only a lab leak from China, which is still possible, we don't, we, we don't know, but that it may have been deliberate, that th there were accusations from American senators that China developed this and released it on the world to harm the world. And that combined with uh, presidential and secretary of state statements about China, which did exceed normal, even normal, harsh diplomatic rhetoric coming after the trade war. I think there's a strong sense in China that it owes the United States precisely nothing uh, in these areas and that it will buy what it needs uh, for its own purposes. And so we've moved beyond the trade deal phase one. Uh, the question now, and President Biden is, is is publicly grappling with it, is whether some tariffs on China, uh, all of which have been paid by the American consumers and mostly American corporations, the costs have been borne by Americans, should some of those be lifted as a counterinflationary measure? This is where these arguments have gone for now. Uh, so the phase one was an unworkable contingency pre-COVID, 
post-COVID and given the way that all sides have handled COVID, uh, I think the phase one trade deal is mostly a dead letter. I, I think I think you're right there. The question that comes to mind is, did COVID, in a way, let China off the hook? Well, we'd be having very different discussions. So if COVID hadn't occurred, and if we had not had other major sources of rancor in the relationship, that's a pretty big hypothetical, but let, let's posit it. I think that you would have seen China make an effort to be seen as making an effort to meet its pledges. Which is so that's what they always do, right? Yeah, yeah. So they would have they would have increased their purchases in those uh, areas, say especially in agriculture, uh, a little bit um, over over their previous year's purchases, and then would have you know pointed to market forces uh, to cover the rest, and we would have ended up where we were, namely precisely where we started, deeply dissatisfied with China's support for its state-owned enterprises and other non-competitive practices. Well, very interesting. And really, thank you so much. Over the course of 100 episodes, you have been a mainstay, uh, not only to this podcast, but also to the Wilson Center and to congressional staff and policymakers throughout the government who require expertise on China that's nonpartisan. So thanks so much for for being there for us. It's It's a great show. It's good to work with you. Thank you so much, Robert. We're going to turn our sights now to the sunny South Pacific, where a couple of years ago we had a discussion with Abraham Denmark, who at the time was our director of the Asia program and is now our vice president of programs. Let's take a listen to what he had to say about the South Pacific back then. Okay, so you have these presidents, they're coming to the U.S. We have our secretary of state going and visiting what are they talking about? What are, the, what, what are these conversations like? So all of the, what's happening when it comes down to it is about U.S.-China competition, that these islands are uh, significant in a few ways uh, that speak directly to American power and to Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific. There's a reason why Japan and the United States fought several bloody battles over these sorts of islands, because uh, geographically, they're extremely important. Um, um, so um, but we, what we've seen in the last few months has been China trying to exert its influence and exert its access into these areas. So there was a report just a few weeks ago that China had sought to lease an entire island of the Solomon Islands, hmm. uh, an island called Tulagi. Um, now, Tulagi is not famous. It's about... Um, a few, it's a few miles offshore of a more famous island called Guadalcanal. Okay. Um, and it was actually, it was a former uh, naval depot for Imperial Japan. Before that, it was a naval depot for the, uh, uh, Imper- the, for the British. Hmm. It has one of the most uh, important, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the best quality natural harbors in the South Pacific, a deep water harbor. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, it's important militarily and because of its location. So is this like an, and now here we are traveling forward in time to our 100th episode here. Abe, thanks for coming back on. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this South Pacific, the, the prescient knowledge that you had back then when nobody was really paying attention to the South Pacific. And now we're starting to see it pop up a lot more. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And congratulations 
on 100 episodes. It's a remarkable achievement. It's a fantastic podcast. I'm always happy to uh, to join. Yeah, the Pacific Islands, I think, is uh, recently gotten a lot of attention. Uh, senior Chinese officials visited and tried to get a big agreement signed with the Pacific Islands. Um, the uh, uh, Biden administration sent some senior people out to the Pacific Islands uh, soon thereafter um, to um, make sure that uh, our views were represented. Uh, I think it was just a week after the Chinese foreign minister visited. So yeah, the Pacific Islands are uh, getting a lot of attention these days, and I think uh, very much deservedly so. Yeah, and you, and you told us about this, that the Chinese have their eye on these uh, on these islands and these nations that are in the South Pacific, um, sort of almost like in a Belt and Road style initiative where they're coming with infrastructure projects in hand and contracts and hotels and things that they can build and do. What are the Americans coming with? Well, for for several years now, the U.S. has had with many of these states uh, what's known as the Compact of Free Association, um, uh, it, which um, countries such as uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, uh, the Republic of Palau, um, uh, enter an agreement uh, with the United States um, where we um, work with them uh, and they provide, we provide some uh, economic benefits to them and they provide us with some uh, military access, some exclusive military access, um, which traditionally has been a pretty good deal for the United States as well as for these uh, smaller Pacific Island countries. But uh, China is offering a scale of economic inducements um, that is very much beyond what the U.S. has offered, while the U.S. are, are the renewal of this compact is up uh, to the Congress. It needs to be renewed in the next few years. Um, and there's a lot of controversy because it costs the U.S. money, um, and at a time especially when the uh, American economy is showing uh, difficult times, it's uh, not something that the Congress um, is always uh, happy to do. Uh, so the Chinese see uh, an opportunity there, but um, I think the U.S., uh, especially the State Department folks, the foreign affairs experts, understand the strategic importance of this, uh, of these places, and are trying to uh, convince the Congress, convince other folks that we need to do what's necessary. Um, even if it doesn't make a strong economic case, it makes an extremely strong geopolitical case. Well, I, I remember reading just very recently an article about uh, some of the infrastructure that the United States installed was all done 70, 80 years ago. And in some cases has not been touched since. Um, so, you know, when the United States is sending representatives over after the Chinese have come, I mean, is that something that's actually coming with real tangible value to these nations? Well, the real tangible value really is in the compact itself, the uh, security agreements, the security commitments that the U.S. provides um, so that they can focus their uh, their um, funds, their resources on their own development and their own society. Um, so they do get a lot out of it. Um, uh, don't get me wrong, but um, the economic inducements that the Chinese are offering um, are much more updated and they're much more geared towards um, attracting attention. Um, but what's interesting is that despite all of that, what China has been promising, uh, there's a lot of skepticism in these countries uh, because they see what's been happening around the world in reaction to BRI. Um, and frankly, they don't trust the Chinese. 
Um, so there's very little interest in security agreement. And even on the economic inducements, um, there's a degree of skepticism uh, because they read the papers as, as well as we do. Uh, they don't want to be indebted or beholden or subject to the Chinese or subject to Chinese um, Chinese uh, economic coercion more than anybody else. Um, so despite all that the Chinese are offering, these Pacific Islanders are standing up for themselves, um, which is obviously very much in their interest, but I also think in the U.S. interest as well. As long as we can uh, take advantage of it, I think that's probably the wrong term, um, but make use of these strategic opportunities and help the Pacific Islanders by getting them what they are looking for and what they need. Yeah, we have to remember these are not vassal states. These are independent nations. While they do have the free association compact, uh, they they are going to look out for their own interests. Um, you know, we've also heard some talk about Australia, and it's, of course, obviously a closer neighbor, uh, but the United States and Australia being allies, uh, trying to also win influence there. Is there a way that Australia could kind of step up to where the United States maybe isn't making the commitment, is Australia trying to fill that that vacuum? So Australia has a very active uh, uh, development uh, programs in the Pacific Islands, as does New Zealand, which doesn't get as much attention here in the United States, um, but they're extremely active in terms of economic development um, with the, um, with the, uh, in the Pacific Islands. The difference though, is that these are being done uh, for um, for humanitarian and um, humanitarian reasons and for purposes of economic development, they're not part of a broader plan for ge- uh, geopolitical influence as it is coming out of Beijing. So they have a different tenor, a different scale, a different level of ambition um, because these are being done as part of normal practices uh, in Australia and New Zealand, not a, a big geopolitical push. Um, so I think the U.S., they do have special relationships with these countries. They do have different inroads than the U.S. has. Uh, but especially with the members of the, uh, the uh, Compact of Free Association, um, the United States has a very special relationship with these countries as well. And we have the, a great opportunity uh, to really uh, reinforce these relationships in a fundamental way, in a way that the Chinese wouldn't be able to undermine. But it's going to take uh, Congress, it's going to take uh, the U.S. administration all working together uh, to make sure that, and to agree that we're willing to pay the costs, um, uh, primarily the economic costs for what we see as a tremendous geopolitical benefit. Well, I did, I was also want to take note of a New York Times article that came out just a couple of weeks ago at the end of May, and it says, why you're hearing more about the Pacific Islands, the United States and Australia are in a contest for influence with China across the region, and it's intensifying but of course, if you are a listener to the Need to Know podcast and you listened to us a couple of years ago, you knew that this was an issue long before the 27th of May when that article came out. And we owe that to Abe Denmark. So thank you for that, Abe. And, you know, since since we have you here, uh, what what further do we need to watch for in the, you know, what's the trend line in this area uh, that policymakers in the U.S. should be watching for and maybe uh, pushing for some of uh, some of our policymakers to do. So the the two issues that I I think that to watch b- beyond what we talked about before in terms of uh, the renewing the compact of free association, uh, the two issues I'd look for before one is Taiwan. Um, that some of these countries uh, in the Pacific Islands are some of the last countries that uh, diplomatically recognize Taiwan, um, and as we expect Beijing to put more and more pressure on Taiwan. These countries will also come under pressure to shift recognition of Beijing. 
Um, that's one. The other is going to be um, uh, Chinese uh, efforts to put in military bases uh, into some of the Pacific Islands, or at least um, military facilities. They, they're not large-scale bases, the kind that the U.S. has built around the world, um, but similar to what's been reported going on in Cambodia, uh, what was already established in the Middle East, um, that there may be ambitions from the Chinese to start putting in some military facilities there. Uh, and the prospect of a uh, Chinese military facility directly between the United States and Australia, the United States and New Zealand, um, I think would be deeply concerning uh, for us and for our allies. And so that's something to watch very closely. Well, I know you probably heard it here first because there haven't been many people talking about the Pacific Islands. But you know what? This is one of the great things about working at the Wilson Center is the the fact that a program director or uh, or, vi- or a VP can come up to me and say, hey, you maybe, you maybe ought to look at the Pacific Islands for a podcast episode. And certainly I'm glad we did it. Thank you for joining me on our 100th episode, Abe. It's my pleasure. And I think for the 200th episode, we should do a live recording from Fiji. I'm down with that. Let's do it. Well, there you have it. The 100th episode of the Need to Know podcast. Special thanks to everyone who takes a listen to this podcast. It would not be available without you. And certainly a thank you to every guest that we have had in the last 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. Appreciate everyone listening. Be sure to check out more podcasts at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts. And thank you all for your support.